Hello and welcome to the Third Sector Podcast. I'm Rebecca Cooney, Senior Features and Analysis Writer. And I'm Russell Hargrave, Senior Reporter at Third Sector, the UK's leading publication for the voluntary and not-for-profit sector. Each week we sit down for a quick-fire conversation about the interesting or unusual goings-on in the charity world. And this week we're discussing whether foundations have a problem with diversity. And this week's Good News Bulletin, we've got an interesting approach to charging for events. Um, but first, Russell, have you ever done something you'd expressly been warned not to do? This feels a bit like the start of an HR meeting. Um, <laughs> do you, do you... It's been a theme recently, hasn't it? <laughs> um, but yeah, you don't you don't look too serious. I can see you on the, on the webcam, so I, I presume that I'm not in any kind of trouble. Um, I mean, like most people, I have, of course. I mean, a few years back, I changed jobs. And a very good friend of mine took me to one side and said, honestly, I think this is a mistake. You don't want to do this. <laughs> and the worst thing was that because I was kind of bloody minded and arrogant, I thought, no, I am going to change jobs. This makes me doubly convinced it's a really great idea and I'm going to ignore this person completely. And it was a disaster. Um, I should say not really the fault of anyone involved. It was just a bit of a mismatch. But sometimes people can see that stuff, right? Your friends and your colleagues can see things more clearly than you can. So I was warned not to do it. I crashed ahead and did it, and about sort of a year and a couple of months later, I sort of stumbled away with my tail between my legs, thinking, "Oh, that <laughs> that hadn't really quite worked in the way I hoped." So you know, it happens from time to time. I, I do have some more kind of uh, X-rated versions of that story, but I think I'll probably leave them well behind. Um, what about you, Rebecca? Hmm. What? Well, so I was trying to think for this. I was, and to be honest, remain an insufferable goody two shoes. Um, so literally, with this question, the only thing I could think of was the time um, when I, I was told as a kid uh, that I wasn't allowed to get my ears pierced until I was about. 13, 14, I think. Um, and um, I bought a pair of magnetic earrings from Claire's Accessories, age 12. So I think anyone my age will sort of, will you know, know the, 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 the loveliness of Claire's Accessories and the sort of hold that has on you. But they had these earrings that so they weren't clip-ons, they're magnetic, so they look like studs. Um, and I bought a pair of these earrings when I was out with a friend and I pretended to my mum and dad that they were real. Uh, having been expressly told I couldn't have my ears pierced and I just remember this expression on my parents face just going I we she doesn't do stuff like this we don't know how to deal with this like like what what do we punish her do we ground her is that what happens like it was just they were very confused by the whole thing because it was I had, had never had a rebellious streak before that um I mean I don't want to reinforce this idea that you're a bit of a goody two-shoes I can't have noticed in that story is the one about you being told not to do something. You still didn't actually do it. You just pretended that I didn't actually it. do it. I just pretended <laughs> I'd done it. Yes, no, that is true. That is true. I can't think of anything. I'm sure, I'm sure, like, I'm sure mum and dad uh, will, 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 tell me will let me know well rebecca's uh, family have a whole podcast to get in touch if they want to to tell us what things she actually did that were <laughs> we're we're talking about this in the wake of the decision by the department for digital culture media and sport uh this week to go ahead and appoint orlando fraser as the next chair of the charity commission um and they've done that despite the dcms select committee that's the mps who scrutinize everything that the department does they rejected him as a candidate but ministers have appointed mr fraser nonetheless um, last week, following a pre-appointment hearing, those MPs said that while Fraser had potential to do the job, they were disappointed that he represented yet another archetypal and unimaginative choice from a limited shortlist. 
So Fraser was the second candidate to be drawn from the same shortlist. The previous choice, Martin Thomas, was approved by the committee and was formally appointed to the role, but then resigned before even starting after the Times newspaper uncovered allegations of misconduct dating back to when he was chair of the charity Women for Women International. Um, And yeah, I want to say that it's unusual for select committees to reject the government's preferred candidate for public roles and then for the government to ignore that DCMS recommendation slash rejection. Historically, both of those things were unusual. But if you discount Martin Thomas, this is actually the second time in a row that both of those things have happened. In 2018, the DCMS Select Committee unanimously rejected Baroness Towell as prospective chair of the Charity Commission. But Matt Hancock, the Cultural Secretary at the time, appointed her anyway. She did not serve out her full three-year term. So, Russell, what did you make of this decision? Um, so, as you say, it's been an absolute kind of roller coaster and roundabout of, uh, of of who's up and who's down and actually trying to make a decision and choose a new charity commission chair. I mean, on Orlando Fraser, I think we probably now have to judge him on his performance. He is there. He did lay out, I think, a fairly unexciting but clear idea of what he thought the role enjoyed. And frankly, at least he's made it this far. As you say, Martin Thomas didn't really get his feet under the table before he was forced to resign because he hadn't actually revealed past allegations to the select committee. Um, and Tina Stoll, I think I might say in the DCMS committee, described it as one of the worst interviews that they'd seen in three decades of public life when she came before the committee. So Orlando Fraser has not fallen into either of those massive elephant traps. <laughs> so if, if only because the bar was set so low, I think uh, there are lots of reasons to say, look, we've got someone in place, someone with a bit of background, a previous charity commission board member anyway, let's, um, let's let him get on with it. I think one thing that was really striking about that committee hearing, though, he was asked about um, Kids Company. Of course, he sat on the charity commission at the point when the Kids Company collapse took place. And he said that he thought Kids Company was a, a good charity um, and that the charity was lucky to have the trustees that it did. Now, that's striking because that's not quite the same line that the charity commission itself took in its report that was published uh, a few months back, where... It actually said, look, the business model wasn't right and the trustees should have been much more careful about looking after the, the finances of that organisation. And the way it collapsed was partly because of that failure of governance. So there's already a bit of clear light, I think, um, <laughs> on, on this quite high profile case between the new chair and what the um, regulator has said in the past. So that's one to keep an eye on. He might be a little more independent minded, even if the conclusions he reached on Kids Company, I think, were extremely generous to that charity. What do you think, Rebecca? Hmm, Yeah, no, I agree with you, actually. And I think like he does definitely have the experience, like he has been on the board before. I mean, that is the thing that makes me go, hmm, though, because so he was around when there was the whole thing with the Charity Commission and Cage and the Joseph Roundtree Charitable Trust, which basically the the Charity Commission sort of tried to seek assurances that uh, the Joseph Roundtree Charitable Trust would never fund Cage again. Uh, Cage was an organisation that had previously worked with um, the uh, Jihadi John and the director of Cage had described him as a beautiful man and sort of said he was radicalised by the um, secret services and yeah, the Charity Commission reacted by uh, seeking assurances, but they they were then had to go to court and sort of ended up saying, "Oh no, we never meant to kind of tell trustees what to do or fetter their discretion or anything." But you know, um, we 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 sort of thought perhaps they shouldn't. And there was as part of that, there was a series of email um, emails that got leaked to third sector, and one of those was from Orlando Fraser saying, "Oh, maybe we should go in and have a sort of look see type inquiry." which is definitely over overstating the powers of the commission a little bit. Um, so that's the kind of thing that makes me go, oh, 
that's not great. But he is, like you say, he is he is experienced. He is willing to disagree with people and not necessarily toe a line, which I think can be a good thing, um, particularly with sort of, you know, so many concerns about this being a politically neutral job that, you know, has not been given to people who are politically neutral in the recent past. Um, so, yeah, so I kind of, and it's, it's worth saying that, you know, the, the, the committee didn't say we have, we don't think he can do the job. They expressly said we think he can do the job. We just think he's not you know, the most imaginative choice, which I think is true. So yeah, I guess like like you say, I think I think wait and see see what what comes out of that. And I think it was really striking that uh, as you say, the committee clearly thought the process was deeply flawed, clearly felt that the people that DCMS had had to choose from wasn't very inspiring or exciting for the sector. Um, but ultimately they looked at Orlando Fraser as somebody who could do the job. They ultimately didn't want to see him appointed because they wanted to see the process reformed. But they gave a, a, a admittedly lukewarm uh, welcome to, to Fraser. But they did still say they thought he could do the job. Yeah, absolutely. In recent weeks, two separate reports have concluded that charitable foundations are failing on issues of equality, diversity and inclusion, and that they weren't being transparent enough about this. The most recent was the Foundation Practice Rating, an assessment of 100 foundations carried out by the consultancy and research firm Giving Evidence. This report was compiled using publicly available data and without the involvement of the foundations themselves. It found that more than a quarter of foundations were failing on accountability, transparency and diversity practices. 28 of the 100 foundations assessed were awarded a D grade for their overall practice, the lowest score available. Meanwhile, just three were awarded an A grade. Foundations scored especially poorly on diversity, the research found, with the majority publishing so little relevant information that it was impossible to make any assessment at all, researchers said. The research highlighted particular concerns about how few foundations had mechanisms in place for communicating with people living with visual impairments or hearing impairments. The other report, which was published at the beginning of March, was the Becoming Stronger Foundations report, and that was published by the Association of Charitable Foundations. This one was based on 110 self-assessment surveys, which was completed by more than 50 ACF members. And the ACF then shared the anonymised results to give a better understanding of where foundations are strongest and where they still have work to do. The self-assessment surveys asked foundations to score themselves from one to five in each of the areas, where one was something they had not yet considered and five was considered fully embedded in their work. The four lowest scoring areas were all in diversity, equity and inclusion bracket, with the lowest area being we express our DEI commitment policies and practices publicly with an average of 2.2 out of 5. The other lowest scoring areas were we collaborate with others to promote and implement DEI practices and collecting, tracking and publishing data on foundations practices and performance. So it seems in both reports we've got issues around EDI policies themselves but also around the collecting and or publishing data that establishes how foundations are doing. To find out more about the results of these two reports and the wider issues foundations are wrestling with we're joined by Carol Mack, Chief Executive of the ACF. Carol thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me it's great to be here. Brilliant. Um, so we've had two reports in quite quick succession, which suggest that foundations are struggling on diversity, inclusion, and in some cases, transparency as well. What are these foundations getting wrong, do you think? Yeah, I think it's important to set these reports in context. Um, and I think it's interesting that they've appeared at the current time. It's more important than ever that foundations strive to be their best selves. As we all are too aware, COVID has shone a very bright light on inequality in communities, and we're only just starting to see the fallout from the war in Ukraine. 
And all of this is meaning that very sadly, there's a growing demand for charitable services and that looks set to increase. The good news is that giving by foundations has increased too, and it's at a record high, but demand is outstripping supply and the proportion of applications for funding that are not successful is increasing. So in response to all of this, foundations are looking hard at their own practice and they are taking action. And it's interesting that both the Foundation Practice Report and the ACF Stronger Foundations Report, they're both examples of this, foundations examining their own practice. They're entirely separate initiatives, but they do share some common findings. So enough background to the report. What's the evidence telling us? (laughs) Well, the ACF report is based on our Stronger Foundations initiative. That involved more than 100 foundations looking at what's excellent practice across a whole range of foundation activities, looking at diversity and transparency, as you mentioned, but also funding practice, impact strategy, investments and governance. And that report and that project identified 40 pillars of ambitious practice across six themes. And over the past year, ACF members have been rating themselves against that as a benchmark. So as well as identifying where foundations feel they're falling short, data from our report shows that foundations are also actively pursuing ambitious and effective practice, including around diversity and equity and inclusion. And that's driven by a desire to make the most of the resources they have available for social good. So many foundations are strengthening their governance, they're being more transparent, they're reducing the burden on grantees, and importantly, they're improving staff and board diversity. There's much more to do, but where there's a will, there's a way. And both of these reports are showing where foundations need to make progress and also offering practical steps for them to do this. So your specific question about where could foundations do better? Our report shows that foundations are making the most progress in understanding and defining diversity, equity and inclusion, what that actually means in their own context. What they're weakest on is expressing their diversity, equity and inclusion commitments and policies publicly. But the good news is that both reports show that foundations can be harsh critics of their own practice and that they're more than willing to call themselves out for falling short of the high bar that they aspire to reach. Two reports, I think, make really interesting reading. Um, and I think you sort of outlined really well what, what they capture. Um, one thing that really jumped out at me was that both studies highlight a failure as much as anything about making that information public, publishing it somewhere, say, on the website or in a set of annual accounts. There's not always a lot of diversity and equity information in there. Why, why do you think that might be? Why do you think that some of that stuff isn't making its way into the public realm? Yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it? I mean, the foundation practice um, rating report, I think you were referring to there, and that shows the foundation sectors doing okay on transparency, mixed results on accountability, and it's got a lot more work to do on diversity practice. Um, and we know from our report that some of the foundation, from talking to foundations, that some of the foundations are actually doing quite well in improving their EDI practice. They were marked down in the ratings project, exactly as you say, because they're not publishing information about what they're doing, or they aren't providing the data in a way that's easy to access. So for some, I think there are some fairly simple steps they can take that will improve their rating next time. Um, And conversely, there's also a few who are rated well because of the way they provide the information, but they themselves, if you talk to them, will feel that actually they've got further to travel than the rating suggests. So as you're, you're suggesting, it's not just doing the hard work of embedding diversity, equity and inclusion across your practice. And it's 
it's not enough just to be open and transparent about what you're doing either. It's got to be a combination of the two. And that's really interesting because that was exactly the question that, that sprang to my mind when I read the report. Is it possible that actually the diversity practices at the foundations, um, those practices can be pretty strong, but it's not being talked about enough? In which case, those foundation, the, the, those kind of stepping stones are there. It's just a question of letting the world know about it. Is it possible that's what's happening here? I think some of that. I think um, I think foundations have tended to focus on their own practice and getting that right rather than talking to talking about it more broadly. Um, most foundations don't seek or have a particularly high profile public persona, although there's some very honourable exceptions to that. Um, yeah, I, I think all foundations have recognised they've got further to go. And when we published our um, DEI report, what we found quite encouragingly is that there are examples out there of foundations achieving every single one of the pillars of stronger diversity, equity and inclusion practices. Lots of great practice out there. But we also found that no foundation was achieving all of the pillars. So, you know, it's a mixed it's a mixed picture, I would say. What is it do you think that is preventing foundations from hitting all of those pillars and from you know either doing better on EDI or talking better about it? Well, I think firstly, it's important to say the pillars are ambitious practice and they were designed not to be a tick box, but something to, to work towards, something to aspire towards. And I think the context has changed since the report was published. So three years ago, um, some people thought that diversity, equity and inclusion was only relevant to a minority of foundations. That's certainly not the case today. A focus on diversity, equity and inclusion has stopped being ambitious practice and it's started to become necessary practice for foundations. Um, COVID exacerbated, it shone a spotlight on stark inequalities between racially minoritised communities, older and disabled people and people in poverty. And that's really challenged foundation thinking and, and led foundations to ask more searching questions of themselves. So, so we know from our engagement with members and from the data that we've gathered through our Stronger Foundation self-assessment tool, we know that members want to make progress on DEI. They're telling us it's the area where they've got the furthest distance to travel, but it's also the area where they've got the most activity planned and the most ambitious plans. Do you think foundations face challenges that other charities don't in this area? Yes, I think they do. I think it's important in in talking about these not to be offering them as a defence, but to be offering them as to an ex- an explanation of where we are now, not why things can't change in the future. But I mean, just take family foundations, for example. You know, at, at one level, you've got some foundations that are set up Um, by a company, they probably aligned with all that company's best practice. If you've got a family foundation, then it really is a vehicle for uh, sometimes an individual, sometimes a family's giving. Their charity is set up by a family to channel their charitable giving. It's their generosity that's led to the establishment of this foundation. And sometimes they're set up in a way that stipulates that only family members can be trustees. So if all of your trustees are drawn from one family, well, you might have diversity in terms of gender. You'd you'd rather hope so, wouldn't you? (laughs) Um, And you might have diversity in terms of ethnicity, though not always. Um, Perhaps not diversity in terms of class or lived experience because everyone's drawn from the same family. Now, that doesn't mean you can't make progress on diversity, equity and inclusion. There are many opportunities to build in 
um, diversity, equity and inclusion beyond the board. And I've seen some really imaginative approaches from family foundations that have thought hard about this, about taking um, an EDI approach to their decision making, to the way they collect their data, to the way they set their priorities, the feedback they get from applicants and grantees, how accessible their application processes are. So it's just a bit of context, really, that I don't think you get that so much in in other charities. Uh, Another point would be size. Um, So you tend to, as a shorthand, judge the size of a charity by its turnover, by its um, uh, expenditure or its income. And that can be really misleading with foundations because they're not running services with that money. They're generally giving it away. So a typical foundation, if there is such a thing, probably has a single part-time member of staff responsible for executing all of its activities. And many foundations are entirely trustee-led with no staff at all and could still be giving away significant amounts of money. So if you've, if you've got less capacity um, directed at your own activities as a foundation and your focus is on funding others, that can result in you having less headspace for getting to grips with issues like transparency or diversity, equity, inclusion, or less capacity to report on progress. Now, I don't want to suggest in saying that for a minute that large foundations have got a monopoly on good practice. That's not what our evidence is telling us. We see foundations of all shapes and sizes with excellent DEI practice and really thoughtful about their transparency. I'm just mentioning it because when you say foundation and you look at their annual spend, you tend to think big organisation, but that's the exception rather than the rule. There's another factor that, that might be relevant here as well. And that is that most foundations lack many of the lines of accountability and public pressure that businesses or other charities have. So foundations generally don't fundraise. They don't have shareholders like companies or customers like companies. But that doesn't mean that they're immune to the trend for greater transparency. And in fact, we're seeing the foundation practice rating looking at the transparency of foundations and Many are embracing the benefits it brings, including those foundations that funded that particular um, initiative. So I think increasingly foundations, rather than seeing greater transparency and better engagement as a risk, I think many of them are seeing it as something that can actually help them in their practice. It builds trust and legitimacy. That's really important when you're a grant maker. It promotes efficiency and it results in more equitable access to information. So being more transparent can improve decision making, it can enhance impact and it can increase influence. So in nearly all cases, leaning towards being more transparent and more engaged is likely to bring significant benefits for the foundation and for people who want to know more about it. So for trusts and foundations that are looking to improve their EDI, that are looking to improve their transparency around it, is there any advice that you would offer them? Yeah, definitely. I think um, I think. Looking within the sector at some of the advice that's there and some of the experience that's there is going to be really helpful. There have been campaigns from within the foundation sector that have exposed institutional racism, have exposed bias, and that's catalyzed many foundations to look at their own culture and also publicly commit to change for the first time, including through EDI policies and statements. And communities within foundations have been transformative in giving staff and trustees that previously found it hard to get a platform to get support to become active and become influential. So reading and taking on board what these communities are saying, I think, is a a really important first step. 
Lots of practical solutions have been put forward um, and foundations are, are picking up on those, being more open on their recruitment, more intentional about the funding data they collect. And through the Stronger Foundations project, we've highlighted lots of examples of foundations taking um, taking action in this area. Things like collecting anonymous feedback from grantees can be helpful, anonymous feedback from applicants, ring fencing funding for racially minoritized communities is something a lot of foundations have found helpful, introducing targets for board diversity. I mean, that applies not just to foundations, but to, to any charity and lots of the advice that works for um, the wider charity sector works for foundations too. Um, foundations publishing details about their investments and also including people with lived experience in strategy development. I think all of these things are helpful. Great. So there's a lot of stuff there. It's sort of looking at what's worked for other foundations, other charities as well. Do you have any other advice you would offer? Yeah, I do. I think it's really important to see work on diversity, equity and inclusion, not as somehow separate from your mission, but as an absolutely essential part of it. Because without including diverse perspectives and without being truly inclusive, you're not going to reach your full potential as a foundation. Um, there's lots of resources out there, as we were just saying, and so much so that sometimes it's easy to feel overwhelmed. But the most important point is to make a start and to keep going, even when things get uncomfortable. This is a journey. It's not a tick box exercise with an end point. And more broadly, if I, if I can, one of the key principles to emerge from the Stronger Foundations Initiative is the alignment of values, resources and behaviours with the foundation's own mission and the importance of that, the primacy of mission in everything a foundation does. So my last piece of advice really is to get connected. I thought it was really interesting in the foundation practice rating that 40% of the foundations who were assessed were ACF members, but 80% of the foundations that got an A or B are ACF members. So it looks to me like ACF membership correlates directly with stronger practice. So if anyone listening to this is a foundation and it isn't in membership. This is the commercial break. My final piece of advice <laughs> is to consider joining ACF. Benefit from our fantastic network of members. We'd love to have you join us. Brilliant. Um, Carol, thank you very much for joining us. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. Each week, we're bringing you a good news bulletin, positive or quirky news stories that we've spotted in the sector. Uh, so this one was an interesting one from Scottish Autism, which is piloting a pay-what-you-can initiative to encourage autistic people and their families to attend its annual conference. The conference, which is being held online on Thursday 12th of May, includes an impressive list of highly respected professionals from around the UK and Ireland delivering presentations on this year's conference theme, which is Behind the Mask. The theme focuses on the pressures and consequences that autistic people feel fitting in and accessing support. So the way they've decided to structure it is that there will be an admission fee for professionals to attend. However, to make the conference more inclusive, accessible and affordable for non-professionals to attend, the price of attending is whatever the family or autistic individual is able to pay. Kerry-Ann MacDonald, who is the events manager at Scottish Autism, said, quote, We are delighted to be running this initiative to enable more autistic people and their families to attend our online conference this year. There are many autistic people and family members across Scotland and beyond who will really value this opportunity to hear from our keynote speakers on the topic of masking. This pay-what-you-can scheme will now allow many to attend our conference for the first time. 
Um, and I just thought this was great. I, you know, I know that kind of a few events in the art space that sort of run this way, kind of pay what you can to make things accessible. But I just thought it's probably the first time I've heard of a charity sort of making sort of its annual events conference, structuring it in this way. Um, and I just thought it was really clever, a really nifty little idea. So I just wanted to kind of, yeah, just highlight that. It's also the case, isn't it, that charities very often benefit from this sort of thing. If there are events, you'll often get charity rates where a business mm. will pay a little bit more. They'll subsidise so that a non-profit can go along. It's definitely good to see charities sort of applying that logic themselves for their own beneficiaries. Um, naturally, big charities dealing in, in, in autism um, may well have a whole events budget for dealing with things like this. Families who are going to be able to see the same speaker simply won't be able to compete with that. And what the charity seems to have done is come up with a way of, of, of trying to trade those two off against each other. So yeah, the much more like it, please, charity sector. This, this seems to be exactly the right sort of approach. That's all from us. We'll be back with another episode soon. So make sure you subscribe to this, the Third Sector podcast, on your favourite podcast app to be the first to know about it. Until then, I am Russell Hargrave. And I'm Rebecca Cooney. Thank you to our guest, Carol Mack, and to our producer, Lindsay Riley at Rethink Audio. We will see you next week. Mm-hmm.